I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Dr. Don Gross. She's a scientist with a heart, a writer with a passion, and a physician who found her calling in the eyes of her dying father. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. First of all, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're a busy lady, but I really do appreciate the time. Kimberly, it's my honor to be with you today. Thank you so much. And so... What's interesting while I was doing some research is that you were a baker. You went to school to be a physician. You ended up getting even a a PhD. And uh, we've talked, so you, you were more of a scientist. And sort of you put that on pause and became a baker. Now, tell me this. How does a baker, a writer, and a physician, how did, how does, how did all of these careers collide? They collided when life happens. And what I mean by that is with the best of intentions, allowing my curiosity and my passions to lead me through life. And as you said, originally as a scientist, uh, wanting to earn my PhD first in neuroscience, I was encouraged to explore the new MD PhD programs that were being developed to broaden my platform Um, from which I could explore the world with my scientific curiosity. Um, I followed that, not with the intention to become a clinician, but again, to maintain my approach to being a scientist. And and during that time found, surprisingly so, um, a real love of being with patients um, in a way I just didn't expect. And it happened when I was, Um, caring for people on the bone marrow transplant service. Again, originally approaching that specific line of medicine because of my scientific interest in autoimmune disease. My PhD was in immunology. Um, But I found as we became the only source of contact for many of these people who were in literal physical isolation because they had no immune system, um, that I was so moved and inspired by the courage I was witnessing every day and being in the presence of people who were really looking death in the eyes and risking one life-threatening illness, a cancer, a leukemia, for instance, for another, um, which in this case was a bone marrow transplant and and, and can be very life-threatening and certainly life-altering. And through that experience, it, it inspired me to specialized in hematology and specifically in bone marrow transplant. And it was during my last six months of training as I was noticing my, my sort of black sheep approach to being with people and asking them why they wanted chemotherapy. Why did they want transplant? Not because I thought one was right or wrong. I just wanted to make sure they understood what the risks were and what they were um, potentially giving up in their lives for the possibility of another and found myself essentially having goals of care conversations unknowingly. At the same time, my father became terminally ill. And in that experience as a daughter, he was guiding me 
in conversations of goals of care. Again, none of these named as such. They were just what was happening in life, life was happening. My mother was also simultaneously diagnosed with a life-altering illness. And it felt like no world was trying to tell me something quite seriously. And, and, and I started to question what I was here to do. And at the very end of my training, my father died. And I really gave myself permission. That's a generous thing to say. But really, I, I was grieving hard. I was dysfunctional. There was no way I was going to be able to be a support to a patient and their family, let alone my own family. So I stopped. I really stopped and grieved. And in that time, was looking for what I was here to do. And one of the things that happened in the very last week of my father's life is I was struggling to say, what can I do to bring him comfort? What can I do that will make a difference? One of the things that came out of nowhere was to bake the cookie that his mother used to always bake every time we would go visit her in Texas. And while I never once ate a single one of those cookies because they weren't terribly sweet. They're what's called Mandelbrot. They're a Jewish biscotti. It's not like a chocolate chip cookie that a kid might otherwise <laughs> want. But my father loved these cookies. And I remember that as a child, just watching him crave and savor and covet this and how much effort my grandmother went to always making sure she was baking these when he would arrive. And so it just occurred to me, I had her cookbook and I baked them, and I will never forget the look on his face when I put this cookie in his mouth. I mean, it was truly transformative. And so in the midst of my grief, what showed up was I need to bake cookies. <laughs> I need to make these for everyone. And I started um, to just bake rampantly and, and created a company that, while I never sold a single cookie under <laughs> the name of it, <laughs> I had the license, but I gave out, I mean, dozens and dozens of these treats. <laughs> now, you actually had a storefront, didn't you? I did not have a storefront. I had packaging. I had marketing, if you will, but I was baking these in my home. Okay, so at least you weren't at a storefront just saying, free cookies, come in. No, no, <laughs> no. I was, I was bringing them to people. I was offering them to, like, school fundraising auctions and things of this sort. And, and once I did become a hospice physician, I was then giving them to families um, at memorial services and what have you. So through your, your father's death and your mother's illness, you, did your perspective or experience with death and dying change? Dramatically, profoundly. Um, up until that point, uh, I had no experience. Even as a physician, you had no experience with death and dying. In, in a human experiential way, I can say no. Um, in a medical way, absolutely, I had experience. But there was no context and no permission to talk about it as an experience. It was spoken about as a medical occurrence. And there were things to be done. There were procedures. Certainly, I think every trainee remembers the first time they have to pronounce a patient right? This is a medical occurrence, a, a formal procedure where, you know, someone could have died an hour earlier, but they're not declared dead and did until you say they are. It's like being an umpire. And there's a, a formal procedure in doing that. There's, there is certainly an experience that happens in that, but no one talks about it. And so 
my family experience was the first time there was permission to talk about it and actually dwell in in what I would consider a healthy exploratory way as opposed to just saying that happened, moving on. Wow. So really, as a physician, you were trained to focus on cure and curing your patients. And after your father's death, you found your way into hospice and palliative care. Now, people confuse hospice and palliative care with no care at all. And I, I tell you, in 2015, you wrote this article in New York Times, The Era in There's Nothing More We Can Do. The article is beautiful, and I recommend everyone Google it. it you, you talked about a patient in this article that I so resonated with. And the way you articulated and wrote this article was so moving to me. And I'd love for you to, to talk a little bit about that patient. Oh, sure. Miss Weatherby is how uh, she's referred to in the article. She uh, was one of the first, but certainly not the last patients whom I've had the privilege of caring for, who while in the intensive care unit on a breathing machine, a ventilator, was wide awake, alert, fully engaged in life, able to communicate. This is not typical. Most people, when they're in the intensive care unit, um, are incapable of really engaging in life. It is too uncomfortable um, or they're in too much distress, which is why they're on a breathing machine in some instances, um, that they really are purposefully sedated um, for their own well-being until their body, if they're fortunate enough to, to heal through the procedure where they can then come off the machine. But in this case, Ms. Weatherby was fully present and in some ways more present than many people walking around the hospital. And what was then really extraordinary was the opportunity to talk with her about her goals of care, about her current experience and level of care and what mattered most to her. And while all too often in the intensive care unit, we're left to guess and make our best educated guesses as to what someone wants because they're not able to communicate with us or if we're able to talk with family, they've never, as a family, talked about what the person would want. We're all left in the dark. In this case, we had full light. And Ms. Weatherby had no problem communicating what mattered most to her. And and at one point, what, what comes out in the story is where doctors, again, with our best of intentions, using all of our years of experience, we think... Um, that the intensive care unit often creates more distress than comfort. And particularly for someone who has an illness that we know is not something we're able to cure, that they're going to die from this illness very soon. We often say it's time to avoid creating more discomfort, more distress, and focus exclusively on things that provide comfort. And, and, and that was what many people would have intended for Miss Weatherby because that was her situation. She had incurable illnesses and she was going to die in the hospital. And she knew that because again, she was awake and we could tell her this information. And even in that context, she was able to say she was not done being alive. She was not ready to have the breathing tumor removed and have her die um, sooner than she would if she had the breathing tumor in place. And it wasn't because she thought she was going to continue to live forever at all. 
In fact, when I asked this question, I described in the article as my magic wand question. When I asked her, if I had a magic wand, and I certainly don't, but if I did, what would you wish for? As with every single other person I've ever asked this question, she did not say, make me well, cure me. She did not say, let me breathe freely from the machine. What she said, what she wrote down, so I have it in writing, was to have my family know I'm at peace. And with that information, what we get to do is then ask her, what, how can we support you and your family knowing you're at peace? And for her, she had work to do. She was in communication with her family actually via Skype uh, or writing or email trying to have the conversation she felt she needed to repair relationships. And then and only then was she then in a position to say, I'm now ready to have you allow a natural death. And that is ultimately what happened. But in the process, it took a lot of communications with other healthcare providers who were surprised and incredulous because this is so unusual. I think it probably is less unusual than we think because we have a tendency to not ask the question. We do make assumptions in medicine. We make big assumptions and out of the goodness of our hearts, out of our best intentions and out of our training, we assume people come to us to be cured. We're trained to cure. And yet what I have discovered, particularly over the last 10 years in practicing hospice and palliative medicine is cure is not really what it seems to be about that people want to live a life that matters to them and things get in the way of that. That's very different than cure. And that's what Ms. Weatherby really taught me in that moment. What was so profound in the article is that you were comparing your father's death at home in hospice care. And you talked about Ms. Weatherby in the ICU on event trying to find closure that both of those deaths were about quality. And I love that. So many people think that if you're in a certain situation, that that's not quality, because again, we all assume. And I love that when you compare that both of these deaths were beautiful. They were the deaths that they wanted because they were the lives that, the lives that they wanted. And, and that was that moment in the article when, when I'm with the primary physician in charge of Ms. Weatherby's care, because as, as palliative care work consultants, where I was explaining to this physician that, in fact, Ms. Weatherby would want to be maintained on the breathing machine. She would want to be maintained in ICU-level care. And often when palliative care is consulted, there is an assumption that we are there to help people and die comfortably quickly. And that really couldn't be further from the truth. We are there to have people live the lives that matter to them for as long as they choose. It matters to them. I have absolutely no agenda what that life looks like, the manner in which it is lived, other than it be consistent with what that human being wants. And so in this case, for Ms. Weatherby, without question, it was in the intensive care with the breathing machine support. And this physician was really surprised. I mean, he, he literally said, what? Your palliative care? What are you talking about? You know, as if they're... Uh, you know, completely unable to go together. And, and if I could demystify that, um, I, I think a lot of my work would be done. <laughs> we are not the death squad. We are not the Grim Reaper. We are really all about life. Well, you also, you help individuals define their own quality. 
of life. What does that mean to not anyone except the patient? And then you have you take direction to how to walk down that path to honor their quality, correct? Absolutely. And so the contrast being my own father, my own father um, was very clear with me at an extremely young age. I was about six or seven years old. Uh, he was a hospital administrator for a major hospital um, in California. And I remember his walking me down the hall with pride, showing me various things that he had developed for his hospital. And one of them was a program where the nurses who worked in the ICU were required to spend time every month working in the labor and delivery. And he said, so they can see the circle of life. He said, as he was showing me the intensive care unit, he said, Dawn, I, I want you to know, I never want that. He thought he was a healthy human being at that point. There was nothing going on in his health history that would have suggested he was anticipating something at all. He was really having a goals of care conversation or an advanced care planning conversation, truthfully, um, saying, what matters most to me, Dawn, is that whatever one might imagine for my life and whatever extraordinary measures one theoretically could take and the cost both financially and emotionally that you could direct toward that, he says, please don't do that. He said, I'd much rather that resource, that energy be afforded to my grandchildren's education. And, and as a six-year-old, you know, while I couldn't possibly understand the, what he was really saying about ICU care and death and dying, what I remember was, oh, my God, he expects me to be a mother, let alone a grandmother. And that was far more um, terrifying to me. And yet he planted a seed that stuck so that decades later, when he did become terminally ill, there was no question in my mind that what his wishes were, were consistent. And he was still able to tell us that quite clearly. Unfortunately, my mother was not able to hear that. She hadn't heard that at the age of six. <laughs> she she um, is built quite differently. She actually thinks that death is optional and, and it has a very different approach. And so was working very hard to find every way to engage my father. And so, again, it wasn't about what is right or wrong. It was simply what is for one person. Well, the last, I believe one of the last sentences in your article I, has stuck to me since I read it on Monday. And and I, I think I wish that even anyone working in healthcare, you can take the doctor out of the sentence and apply social worker or nurse. And this quote is the only time doctors or insert whoever works in healthcare are left with nothing more we can do is when we fail to ask I love that. That is I that that is really stuck with me, um, and I, I just really think that the power in asking what is the most important to for that patient in the time that they are facing is really really critical. But you, in your training, you were trained to detach from your patient's emotions. So talk to me a little bit about how did you go from being trained to, you know, put some barriers and boundaries in between your patients and emotions to connecting with your father and it redirecting that that's not the doctor you want to be. You're pointing to a couple of transformative or pivotal experiences in my development as a doctor. Again, both of them came at a point in time I really wasn't 
focusing on becoming a practicing physician, but they they have stuck with me and have absolutely informed the way I care for people. The first was was a very real inclination to want to listen to people's life story. I think story is so powerful and and the most important thing we can learn from another person. So wanting to hear it, wanting to create a sense of safety and permission to share that. And in those moments, again, unconsciously unaware, I think um, is when the person who's listening has the opportunity to develop empathy. And that is different than compassion. That really is trying to imagine stepping and walking in another person's experience. And particularly with illness, trying to imagine the impact of illness in every dimension of a person's life um, is profound. And so if we cut off our ability to become empathic in any one domain, we really limit the opportunities we have to make a difference for people. So when I was first being trained my first year of med school, where I, where I, you know, spontaneously reached out to touch a person's knee as they were crying and just sit there in silence in contact with them. I was later reprimanded and told never to do that again. Um, uh, later on uh, in my clinical training um, as a medical student, I was witnessing a very difficult uh, conversation of prognosis, telling a patient who was wide awake in the ICU that they were going to die, they weren't going to be able to leave the hospital, which was just stunning. I didn't have enough clinical knowledge, one, to even process what I was hearing to make it add up, two, as a human being to witness that. I didn't know what to do with it. And I actually backed away from the conversation. I physically removed myself discreetly, but nonetheless physically removed myself and went into the hallway to cry. I didn't know what else to do. I knew I didn't want to cry right there, but I I couldn't stay there any longer. And my residents came to find me after the conversation and reprimanded me lovingly so. But nonetheless, the first thing she said to me was, don't ever do that again. Quickly followed by, and don't think for one moment, I don't go home every night and cry my eyes out. And in that moment, I... I realized that that was not the kind of doctor I was going to be. I didn't have an answer to what I was going to be, but it wasn't going to be that. I didn't have it in me to hold it in and wait and cry at night. And I also felt like there was something inauthentic for me personally, that if I'm having an emotional experience, I'm a human being, and part of health care is to care and to express the caring. And I think, you know, time, wisdom, experience, all these things help one discern something very important, which is, is that emotional experience about me or is that emotional experience an empathic human experience? If it's about me, I do need to separate myself. Something else is getting triggered and I don't have the proper respect or space to provide a patient and family. But if I'm having an emotional experience because something sad is happening, which is a lot of what I do then to not acknowledge the sadness is disrespectful to some degree in my own experience. I'm not saying that about all providers, but for me, if I don't show that level of comprehension, I'm disrespecting the people that I'm with. So I need to find a way to communicate that. Sometimes that's with tears. Sometimes it's not. Um, And so even this morning, in fact, seeing a family where it was clear 
this person was not going to be able to leave the hospital. They were going to die in the hospital. One of the things we have learned, you know, are, are some of this person's joys in life. And so how I express that is going to find versions of those joys. In this particular case, case this person loves to fish. And so last night I went to get, you know, a pretend, a toy fishing rod and, and a toy stuffed fish to bring in to have with him and his family. And the joy and love, you know, the intent with which these gifts were provided was absolutely understood and received. And so what this room has now been filled with all day is laughter mixed with tears. It's the human experience. In the end, it's love. And what I tell people is I, I fall in love with all my patients. I don't think that's crossing boundaries. That's human. I love them. I care about them. Why would I experience something different? It doesn't mean I'm in a romantic relationship with any of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think I want to die in San Francisco. <laughs> People talk I, about you know, hearts here. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, um, what I've experienced in my research, try, you know, doing this podcast is that you guys are so innovative. Even at your medical center, there is a viral, viral Facebook about a cat being wheeled on a little cart to, to ICU patients and they're Duke. And it's just, you guys, something is in the water of innovation that you guys are looking at death and dying in a more personal way than I've ever seen another community do that. And what, what, what's going on in San Francisco? I, I don't know that I can give you the answer uh, or an answer, but I certainly feel supported uh, and encouraged to explore things, to do things outside of a proverbial box. I, in truth, I think the specialty of hospice and palliative medicine, which is it's no longer the newest, but it is still a very new medical specialty, 10 years old, um, gives us permission to be in a very innovative phase of development. And the nature of the specialty is so different from the rest of medical specialties by design. We are an interdisciplinary team by structure and design so that the hierarchy and, and communication approach to the rest of medicine has no place in how we experience and deliver hospice and palliative medicine. So I think that in and of itself gives permission or even uh, demands an expectation that we will be innovative. And I also think, particularly at the institution where I get to practice, we have such diversity in San Francisco proper with, with the population that we serve culturally, economically, educationally, uh, that you, it, there's no way to create a one-size-fits-all. It, it, forget it. You have got to innovate every single day because what worked yesterday is not going to work today with this very different patient population. And also, again, unique perhaps to end-of-life care, which is not all that palliative care is, though certainly is within palliative care. We know that what worked one day when someone is approaching the end of their life may certainly not work tomorrow. So the anticipation of basically, I'm not a surfer, but I, I imagine in watching them, you know, you're, you're just catching the wave and what, you know, that's a great wave and you're going to ride that 
knowing at some point that wave's no longer going to be there. It's going to come to shore and you're going to have to go find another one. And so there's this constant balance of we're in a groove here, but that's going to end and we better already start looking for the next one. Well, I don't know if we've mentioned, but after you, your father died and you handed in the, the chef's hat of a baker, um, you went back to the medical field and you began in hospice, correct? I did. It was a serendipitous uh, aligning of the stars. I had learned about the work of Rachel Remen, who had um, trained actually at the institution where I was earning my fellowship training and was still a local Bay Area um, practitioner. And she had transformed her career originally in pediatric oncology and is, uh, many will consider one of the founding mothers, grandmothers of the bringing the art and mystery of medicine back to the practice of medicine. And, and so I had participated in one of her uh, weekend workshops for physicians in this case, so she does it for all healthcare providers on finding in medicine. Prior to that, in fact, I had learned while my father was still alive that he had participated in one of her workshops called Commonweal, which is for patients with cancer, um, they go for a retreat with her and are exploring, again, the meaning of their illness, how they integrate it into their life. He'd never spoken to me about it. Um, but one day at his home, I saw he had a postcard from her announcing um, that she was giving grand rounds at, at Stanford. And I asked, like, why are you getting this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know, Rachel. I'd be happy to introduce you. So he came with me to Grand Round, standing room only, no PowerPoint in sight, major academic center. This was unheard of. And within 10 seconds of her presentation, I was sitting on the floor in the back of the hall, bawling my eyes out. I knew she was touching on something. I didn't know what it was. And so after my father died, that was one of the things I did in the midst of my grief. It was like, I listen to this. I don't know what it is, but I did this weekend. And at the end of that weekend, she encourages all the participants to engage in something called uh, finding meaning in medicine circle. Basically, you meet up once a month and you discuss, you pick a word and discuss. And so I found one in my local neighborhood and went. And at the, it brings together doctors from all different disciplines, walks of life, ages, what have you. And I was going up to each and every one of them after because I was in this exploratory phase. I didn't know what I was doing. I was baking. I didn't know what I wanted, but I was curious. And one of the people, the person, in fact, whom I was sitting next to, I turned to him. And I said, so what is it you do? Um, and he's a, he's a hospice medical director. And I said, you know, I, my father was on hospice for four days. I have no idea what you do. I referred hundreds of people to hospice. I have no idea what it, you do. And He's like, that's nice. And he pretty much blew me off. But month after month, I came back and I kept turning to him. And after the third month, when I asked, what is it you do? I really don't know. He said, you clearly have a hospice heart. We should talk. And the next day we did. And he shared with me his journey. He's a family practice physician. He looks like Obi-Wan Kenobi. And that's what I call him. And he took me under his wing that day. He offered me a job. He mentored me in the most old-fashioned apprentice one could imagine where I literally shadowed him. And, uh, and the very first day I saw a patient with him as a shadow um, was in a trailer park in Hayward. And I knew that moment that we were there. It's like, this is actually what I've been doing the whole time. I just didn't know it had a name. Oh, wow. And then you went on to become a palliative care physician 
at your medical center. Um, University of California, San Francisco. That's right. Speaking of innovation and San Francisco, I found you because you were doing, of course, PR and a radio show called Dying to Talk. And I was intrigued. And then, of course, I saw you with a friend uh, in a picture with a friend of mine, Dr. Zeter. And I was like, this is a too small of a wor- world. But tell me, so you're, you have a call-in radio show on your local NPR station called Dying to Talk. And people are actually calling in and wanting to talk about death and dying. Yeah, you know, it, it, uh, it's not as crazy as you might think. I really think people are dying to talk about this. And it's just so taboo. It, it, it's a matter of giving people permission to speak freely. And I really modeled it. And my, my, my true role model in this domain is Dr. Ruth. Westheimer, you know, she completely transformed how we were allowed to start talking about death, uh, excuse me, sex publicly. And, and, you know, no holds barred. This woman was matter of fact, bring it on. Let's talk about it. Let's use the proper language. We are not going to leave this behind any closets at all. And to this day, it's, it's as relevant as ever because sex is part of the human experience for most human beings. So, to me, death is absolutely part of the experience for all human beings, whether we like it or not. And to start giving ourselves uh, permission, shedding light on it, it doesn't necessarily make it more comfortable. I'm not comfortable with the thought of my dying. It's not like I'm looking forward to it. And yet, to not talk about it is certainly not going to help. And so what was surprising, actually, in fact, the very first broadcast was with my Obi-Wan Kenobi and um, and the breadth of people who called in. So it wasn't just people who were, say, in the middle of experiencing a challenge with a family member who's dying and maybe there's some disagreement among family members of what to do or how to support them, which is certainly the intention and hope that people will feel comfortable calling with these experiences, which are so ubiquitous. Um, it was also healthcare workers of all disciplines. I remember distinctly we had a, a, a medical interpreter call in talking about the challenges they find themselves in. And we had a respiratory therapist call in. Um, and so wanting to give voice to so many people in healthcare who witness things and don't have permission to share that experience, sort of how we began our conversation today, Kimberly, of, yeah, we do stuff in hospitals. We have procedures, we have protocols, but we don't talk about the experience. And I just came before this, this talk with you. I was at a Schwartz round, um, which was deliberately designed by a patient who witnessed the suffering of his providers. And he wanted to create a venue that gave providers permission to start sharing their experiences because these experiences exist. As much as we may think we can ignore them, they're there and and so I appreciate your shedding light on that as well. Well, you know, the the next question I was going to ask you is, how do we redesign the medical culture? And I think by these short rounds, it's about paying attention that you are human, that you do have emotions, and that that this is this is it's got to be felt and it's got to be talked about. Um, because like you say, you fall in love with your patients. And how are you finding closure and, and dealing with your own 
humanness when it comes to closing that door on probably hundreds of patients that you treat every year. So is there any other ways that you think we can redesign the medical culture to actually support clinicians? Um, and because I, I, I believe we forget to do that. You guys are in a hard situation seeing and treating patients, and we have created a, a medical culture that is not friendly to you guys. The first thing I would say, I would, I would be deliberate with the language we choose. I actually don't believe in closure. I think that is a myth. And in fact, I worked with a colleague to write an article to that effect. That myth is a closure. Um, and in fact, the white coat that I'm wearing, I can turn around. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You have little angel wings on the back of your white coat. There are wings on the back of my white coat. And and they're not my wings. I mean, let's just be clear. I do not relate to myself as an angel or anything of that sort. Though I do think the people I work with absolutely are angels uh, walking this earth. Um, these wings are all those people that I have served, that I have been honored to be a part of their care and who I have witness um, die and they are a visible tangible reminder of who's got my back oh wow so in no way is it closed they're with me they're with me whether Miss Weatherby's with me mm. um, I don't mean that like I'm some schizophrenic and I don't mean that disrespectfully <laughs> but like people come into our lives and they change us forever and I carry that with me forever, not like a burden, not like a weight. This, these wings are not a weight. In fact, they fly, they float, they elevate me. Um, it is a way of keeping their lives present for me and the difference that they do make for me. On a daily basis, what I get to bring forward to the people that I then get to step into um, in the lives ahead. So, so I don't believe in closure and I think perhaps that is what makes it easier, is I'm not saying goodbye in, in this way of, oh, it doesn't mean it's not sad. It's heartbreakingly sad. This family I was just mentioning, you know, watching them fishing, it is devastating and joyful and exquisite and excruciating, and it is life. And I feel like when we give ourselves permission to experience all the emotions, which, as I said earlier, I believe is summed up in the word love. Love encompasses every single one of those emotions, including hate and anger and frustration, which is also part of healthcare. Um, then you get to be fully human. The moment we deny ourselves the permission to experience any one of those emotions, we are starting to kill ourselves. And that's what leads to burnout. I just am all about full self-expression, full experience. And that's what keeps me coming back every day joyfully. I tell you, the palliative care, we are the rowdiest, happiest team in the hospital. You know, we are, we are not this somber, black-clad, you know, Sith-carrying, put a hood over us, look out band of people. We are colorful. We are bringing people music. We're bringing people food. We're bringing people dancing and singing. And we're bringing life to people. What is not to be grateful and joyful about that? Well, you, you sound like you really are designing a perfect end of life for the patients that you guys serve. And, you know, I'm thinking in the back of my head as you're talking, I'm like, man, I want her to be my doctor. And I, I know you're a palliative care doctor. <laughs> and and you are in San Francisco. But man, I think I think that the way you view and the way you um, your emotions are so much a part of what you 
you deliver to your patients and it's authentic and genuine. I think that is a rare, rare gift in an acute setting. And I applaud you. And I am so happy that you decided not to be that doctor that you were trained to be. Um, I think you're I think you're a gift to your patients, and it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I hope that you continue this radio show. It does. Is it? Can you stream it? You can. You can go to kalw.org, and you can find all the episodes and listen at your leisure. <laughs> Look, thank you so much for your time. I like I said earlier. I know you're busy, but to take the time out to share your stories, you do have a book that you're working on. Do you want to plug that? I am. Well, I, I, I look forward to being able to formally plug it once it's formally <laughs> put together. <laughs> but you can find the hints of it in the articles that I've published. So, so the New York Times or the JAMA articles and things of that sort. They're all true stories, short stories of people that I've had the privilege of helping to care for, their families. And, um, and then embedded that is my own story of being the daughter of my father. And so what is your website? I know you have a separate website. Do doctor, just the DR part of doctor as you wish. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I, I can't wait to get out to San Francisco and meet you and several other people. You guys are amazing. You're innovating end of life. And um, it's been a pleasure getting to know you the last couple of days. And again, thank you for your time. And I can't wait till our paths cross face to face. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Thank you for what you're doing. I can't wait till you come. Just be ready to stay. That's all I have to say. Okay. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much. You have a good rest of the day. I know it's only half over. So um, thank you so much. And um, we'll talk soon. And let me know if there's anything that I can do for you. Thank you. Likewise. Have a great one. Bye now. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.